0: I want to thank you for uh, making the effort to be here this morning. We are going to begin, at our congregation, a study of the book of Joshua. Uh, back in January, Michael had a group of preachers that came in and did a study of the book of Joshua in their, in their little group study, and he thought it would be an appropriate uh, topic for us to look at. So we're going to do that over a number of weeks. Uh, today, I'm going to give you a bit of an introduction or an overview of the book of Joshua and then towards the end, we'll have one little point that we'll uh, try to make more or less a little sermonette and talk about uh, specifically how it applies or can apply to us. Uh, but we might think about, well, why so much time on a book that was in the Old Testament? That's That seems to be, uh, you know, maybe a bit overkill. But one of the things you have to remember is that when you study Joshua, Joshua was a type of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not that Joshua was a perfect man, but that the things that he did in leading Israel were very similar to what Jesus did for us. And so, if you look at this passage in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4, now, remember that the book of Hebrews was was written to whom? It was written to Christians in the first century that were Jews. Jews that knew of all of the history of the children of Israel. So, when we read a statement like this in Hebrews 4, which may be very difficult for us to kind of interpret on the surface, understand that those people would have had the reference to go and make that connection a little more easily. So, it says in verse number 8, "...for if Joshua..." Now, interesting, if you look in the Old Testament, or if you look in the King James Version of this particular passage, you will see, instead of it saying Joshua, you know what it says? It says Jesus. Now, when they came back in the the New King James and translated it again, it it is referenced to Joshua, and so it was translated that way. It said, "For, For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not have afterwards spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest... For the people of God. And so what he is doing is he is drawing on a, the Jewish experience of the fact that they were delivered from, from slavery and from Egyptian bondage by the leadership of Moses, but by the hand of God. And what did they do? They wandered across the wilderness for some 40 years. Now, there's another interesting thing there. You know the distance from where they crossed at the, at the, at the uh, Red Sea? To the place where they entered in, to at many years, 40 years later, you know how long that journey was? 11 days. 11 days. And yet, because of their disobedience, God caused them to wander in that wilderness for 40 years. And so, but at the end of that 40 years, Joshua is going to provide them a rest, a rest from all that wandering in that wilderness a rest from all that hardship into a land that was promised from from God's promise to Abraham some 470 years approximately before. Joshua was going to lead the people into that promised land, a land that was described as one that flowed with milk and honey. It was a beautiful, great land to inherit. And God promised that to Abraham that his people would one day have that. And... So, if you, if you look at modern times, if you look at Jesus Christ and what He does for the Christian, think about our life as that wandering. We've been baptized. We've been delivered from sin through Jesus and through His blood. But yet we wander in this land of sin and sorrow for a number of years. And at the end of that, we cross, metaphorically, the Jordan River. You probably heard pe- people uh, in prayer at some point. Uh, Going to God and saying, Lord, just give us a peaceful hour. When it's our time to cross that chilly Jordan, just give us a peaceful hour. Well, what's he talking about? We're not going to go over here to the Holy Land and swim across that river. He's talking about death. He's talking about a time when we will leave this life and go on to a life that's better. And so there's an analogy there. And so there's a lot to be learned from looking at the book of Joshua and understanding how it's applicable to us today as Christians. Well, who was Joshua? His very name means that Yahweh is salvation. Now, Yahweh, as you know, is is one of the terms that the Jews use to describe God, the Father. So, when, so even though Joshua was their deliverer, in the sense that he was the leader, their salvation was truly from whom? It was from God, from the Father. And so, that's what Joshua means. And we meet him in Exodus chapter 17, while he's working with Moses. It says, And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And so Joshua defeated Amalek. So we find that, that before he takes on the task of being a leader in Egypt, what is he, he's groomed for that position. He is, uh, he's brought up in a position where he works with Moses and he, him in, in, in a lower capacity until finally he's called to be the leader. So he's a faithful servant under Moses. And we see that Moses arose with his assistant, whom? Joshua. And Moses went up to the mountain and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. So even when there were other elders, Joshua was, the, was a very important man in Moses' work with the children of Israel, even before Joshua was a leader, because Moses jo- took Joshua with him and he left the elders there to wait, so he was an assistant. Then we find that for the Lord uh, said, had said to them, they shall surely die in the wilderness. So there was not left a man of them except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. Now, this is a reference to... You remember that we said that when the children of Israel came over uh, the Red Sea, and the Red Sea was parted, and they, and they came into the wilderness there, that what did they do? In a very short time, they started going back and worshipping other gods. They they So God delivered them, and yet now they're going back and they're worshipping all these pagan gods. And God was so angry with them, He put a curse upon them, and He said that, this generation is going to die out. Everybody that's in this generation that, that crossed over Jordan, those that were like 18 or 20 years up, old and older, were going to die there in the wilderness except two. They were two faithful men. They were exempt from the curse. And Joshua was one of those people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, uh, with you, a man in whom... this. "...is the Spirit, and lay your hands on Him, set Him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation, and inaugurate Him in their sight." He was appointed leader. He was appointed a leader in front of the whole congregation so that, that the people of Israel would see that in God's eyes, and God's uh, appointment, that Moses would transfer power over to this man and he would become the leader. He would be their leader. And he says, but command Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him for he shall go over before the people and he shall cause him to inherit the land which you see. He was going to be that, that one. And so that's who Joshua was. And so this book that we're going to study is really about, about his work. He was the fulfilling of that promise of Abraham. Thinking about, think about that, that imagine how that would be. We've all we've all had something in our life that we really look forward to and when it finally comes to pass you know the excitement that happens you know I remember years ago when uh, when I was coaching basketball Connie and I would go one of the exciting things that happened for us every year is we would always go down the state basketball tournament and, and we would plan for weeks and months in advance to have everything we'd have our hotel reservations we'd have our tickets we get our tickets real early because we wanted great seats and I mean it was a big event for us and we got down there and we when it finally got there, the excitement of getting to do that was just, it was just thrilling. Think about this. This promise was given to Moses some four hundred and seventy years before. And now imagine the excitement of being the one that was gonna lead your people in to inherit this land that had been talked about for generation after generation. What an incredible thing that must have been. And now Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom for Moses had laid his hand on him so the children of Israel heeded him. They recognized him as their leader. They followed so Israel was willing to follow this man. You know, a leader is not much of a leader if he doesn't have someone that will follow him. And so Joshua like Moses before him, had a group of people, a nation of people, that would follow him and recognize them as their leader. Well, just a quick overview of the book of Joshua. We can see that it's the first book of what we would call Jewish history. The author of the book is probably, most experts think it's Joshua himself, although some have suggested that Maybe there was another writer that, that chronicled these events as they occurred. And interesting to me is that this happened pretty much in a 15-year period. Now, that's a pretty short period of time. In a 15-year period, all this stuff is going to happen about 405 years before B.C. um, and then ending with the death of Joshua some 15 years later in 1390 years B.C. So, again, those are approximate years, but that gives you kind of an idea. Uh, and the land we're talking about is this land that would be right in this area. This is the promised land, and so they're going to cross over right here around the area of Jericho, and they're going to come into that land just above uh, the Dead Sea, and south of the, the, uh, the Sea of Galilee. So that's the land that, and that's the land that was promised. It was flow that flowed with milk and honey. Now, just kind of a breakdown of the book, the focus of the book is really, I would say, twofold. is that There's the conquest of Canaan, and then there's the settling in Canaan. And so, we can see that under the conquest, the, it took about a month to prepare them. And then, it took about seven years in the, in the wars to, to, uh, to take over the land. And so, they, they entered Canaan, and they conquered Canaan. They prepared... And they brought the land into subjection. The location before they crossed, obviously, was right there at the River Jordan. And finally, into Canaan. So you can see over here in the, the last eight years or so of the book, uh, you can see that uh, this is kind of the division of it and how the how the different tribes of the nation were to settle in those areas. Because each of them was get, given a specific territory. Um Interestingly, two and a half of the tribes said, "Hey, let's. What if we just take out our inheritance over here on the on the east side of Jordan? We won't. E- we won't even go into Jordan." And uh, they, most God said that was fine that they could have their land, but they agreed that they would go in and fight with their brethren when they were at war. And so that was that was what happened. Two and a half tribes ended up on the east side of Jordan, where the other half. The other nine and a half were to settle on the west side. So a simple outline of Joshua. Israel enters Canaan in chapters 1 through 5. Israel conquers Canaan in 6 through 12. There is a central campaign in chapters 6 through 8. Now, that is meritarily interesting because if you think about the idea of divide and conquer... The idea was to go through the middle and bore out the middle. That would keep the tribes on the north and the south from aligning themselves against you. And so that was probably a a wise decision that Joshua made, of course, uh, by the hand of God. And then there was a southern campaign and a northern campaign. And then finally in the latter chapters we see where Israel divides up Canaan. And then finally Joshua's farewell and his call to continue to worship and, and stay close to the God. And so, one of the messages of this book that's going to run through the whole thing is to not be afraid. And you can, you can imagine why that's important. You, you can probably think of some times that, that maybe you were afraid. Um, I can think of some times that I was pretty afraid. Uh, I remember one time, long time ago, I was back in my basketball coaching days, I was um, driving a bus, I was in West Texas and I was driving a bus, some of you that know the area, from Crosbyton, that's where I was coaching, to a little town called Spur. Now, it's only about 40 miles, but the problem is, is on Tuesday night, which was our normal game night, it's Bad, bad snowstorm. I don't know how many inches of snow, but it was, it was pretty bad. And so the game was, was postponed. Well, now here it is Thursday. And now it's time we've, we really need to make up that game. So it's agreed that we would make up the game. And not only in those days did you coach, but you also drove the bus. And the roads were still kind of bad. But we made it to Spur, no problem. We played the game, and on the way back home... It was still cold, now it's beginning to refreeze, and an, and a fog comes in. And there is a canyon, there's a cap rock. When you, when you leave Crosbyton, you drop off of a cap rock, and then you go for probably, um, there's probably two or three miles that you're descending, and then you come back up the other side. So there's this canyon in there, and... It wasn't that bad on the way there, but on the way back, again, we started having this refreezing and then the fog. So you're afraid to go too fast because you may slide off the road, but you're afraid to go too slow. You can't really see what's in front of you. Someone may be stopped in front of you and you don't know it, but you're afraid to go too slow because you've got to have a little bit of momentum going as you begin to climb the hill. And I remember I was... (laughs) I was pretty scared. Now, the kids were in the back of the bus and they were just going crazy and didn't even believe this the whole thing, which was good. But I still remember the fear and being so thankful when I finally topped that hill and everything was all right. Um, Scary times. And you can probably think of some times that were scary for you, but God says, He said to them, to not be afraid. And He says to us that same thing. Look at what He says here. He says, in Joshua chapter 1 and verse number 9, "I Have, not, have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. They were going to go in and they were going to fight against what looked like insurmountable odds. They were going to take on cities like Jericho that had this magnificent wall. There was no way they could defeat those people, it would seem. They were going to attack armies of people that were much bigger than them and much larger in number than them. And so God said, don't be afraid. Be of good courage. He repeats this in, in chapter 8 and verse 1. In chapter 25, or 10 in verse 25, and chapter 11 in verse 6. He continues to remind them that your salvation is not in your and your strength, and you and your strength, but rather it's in me. Have confidence in me. And so we find this passage in Hebrews chapter 2. And he says, For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, And every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, received a just reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So again, the Hebrews, or the Hebrew writer talking to Hebrew Christians saying this. Now think about what he's implying here. Is that in the, in the olden days, When the children of Israel or anyone else, when you did what God said, what happened to you? You were successful. Things went well with you. Life was good. You know, when Israel was obedient, and they went in and fought, and they did as God said, God blessed their efforts, and they beat armies that were way beyond their capability. When they were disobedient, what happened? They were defeated, and they were destroyed, even by armies that were weaker. But you know the interesting thing as you think about us the promise is not in this life in in here so again if you put yourself in their shoes if I do what he says he takes care of me and I'm good here for us as Christians our promise is a little different because you see the promise of our salvation is not in this life but it's in the one to come so what it calls us to do is we have to have a confidence and a trust in God that that is, in in some ways, a little more challenging because we won't see those rewards today or tomorrow. You know, there's there are people that have good Christian people have horrible things happen to them. And see, if I really believe that if I do right, that God's going to bless me tomorrow, what happens when things go tough for me tomorrow? If all of my confidence is in, in this life, and my trust is that I'm, I'm being a Christian because of an in, it's like an insurance policy that I'm taking out against uh, catastrophic events that might happen to me. In this life, I've got the wrong approach. Rather, it's an insurance policy toward a life that is promised beyond this one. And that's what makes it more difficult for us today. Then they, now, they had some things that were harder for them too. But that's the challenge for us is that our faith can't be in this life. Our faith has to be in the life that's promised to come. So you see, if you look at over the course of time for the children of Israel, you said, he said, have faith in me. That faith will lead to an obedience and that obedience would lead to good things happening in the here and in the now. For us, we have the cross and now things on the other side of the cross are different because now... It requires a faith, and that faith leads to an obedience. And that obedience may or may not translate into good things in this life. May or may not. And that's the hard thing. But yet, at the end of the road, we know that things will turn out well for us because we will have salvation. We'll have a home with with our God. You know, it wasn't always easy for the children of Israel in those 40 years wandering across the wilderness, not having a home not having a place to call theirs. But the promised land, when they finally did inherit it, it was worth it. It was a place that they could, they could have uh, that, w- that was a good place to be. And so salvation is a far greater place to be. Jesus said these words, Do not fear those that kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both body and both soul and body, in hell. That's a wicked picture, isn't it? Again, having the faith to not fear what happens to you in this life. And that's hard because we're in this life. We want things to go well for us. And so we hope that God will... And when things are good for us, we should thank God. And we should pray that, that things will go well for us. And, and we believe that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And we believe in the providence of God and the power of prayer. And we should invoke those things. And we should invoke them probably more than we do. But our confidence is in our salvation. And Jesus said, said it that way. is Don't worry about the one that can kill your body. Worry about the one that can destroy your soul. Jesus said this also in, in John chapter 14. He said, Peace I leave with you. Now, he's talking to his disciples who were all going to, to live very challenging existences and then ultimately die very horrible deaths with the exception of John. They all, they all were martyred for the cause of Christ. But he says, I leave with you a peace. I give My peace I give to you not as the world gives do I give to you? Let your heart uh, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. In Philippians chapter four and verse number seven, I don't know if you can read that up there, but it talks about the peace of God which passes all understanding. And you know it does. The peace that says, "I'm not sure what all my what my journey is going to hit in this life. I don't know, I can't say. But I have a peace because I know that my final destination has already been determined. That the battle between God and Satan has been won and God through Jesus has been victorious and that you and I will share in that victory one day. So the Christian, the person, the mature Christian is one who can look at things that way. That's a, that's a, tr- a challenge, a hard thing for us to detach ourselves from our own existence enough to think in this way. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, he says, For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I'm guessing there's not one of us that doesn't fight some anxiety from time to time. There's things that trouble us, there's things that worry us. God knows that, He understands that. Does it control us? Is that is that our total focus? Or do we have a peace about us because we know that we have a God who came in the form of a man, Jesus Christ. And He went to that cross and He died in our place. And He was the first fruits from the dead. And just like He arose, one day you will arise if you're but obedient to His cause. I would encourage you this morning... To fight your fears, to look at this this book study of Joshua as one that will be be an encouragement to you, that will help you in your Christian walk. Uh, this morning, if we can help you in any way, uh, we're going to sing a song of invitation. If if you are not protected by the blood of Jesus, then you do have a great deal to fear. If you have let your life stray from Christ, and and you need some need the prayers of this congregation to get yourself right with God so that you can be part of that salvation that is promised to those that are faithful, we would invite you to come as we stand and sing the song that's been selected.